You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We still have to want to protect our own data as individuals, and we still have to want to hold organizations that we hand our data over to accountable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns with an interview with Corinne Imai. She's a senior security advisor at Domain Tools, and she's going to tell us why phishing attacks remain so effective. And we are back. Joe, why don't you kick things off for us this week? My story actually comes from HelpNet Security, and HelpNet Security published a good article on a report that came out of Proofpoint. And I want to open this up with a quote that comes from Kevin Epstein, who is the VP of Threat Operations for Proofpoint. Cyber criminals are aggressively targeting people because sending fraudulent emails, stealing credentials, and uploading malicious attachments to cloud applications is easier and far more profitable, that's very important, profitable, Mm -hmm. than creating an expensive and time-consuming exploit that has a high probability of failure. Hmm. In other words, people are still the weakest link and they're (laughs) still being exploited, which is why we have this show. So I don't see this going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this article talks about attacks on businesses and other organizations, and 99% of them still rely on some kind of human intervention. And that, of course, means that there's some kind of social engineering going on in there. Yeah. And most of it is still phishing. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time on this show talking about phishing, but the reason we do is because it's so prevalent and it's so effective. Yeah, absolutely. And there are some interesting stats in this article, and we'll put a link in the show notes. But it has a chart on the click rates for the 20 most successful phishing campaigns. Hmm. All right. So before you read them off, I have not seen this chart. All right. So let me guess. So what am I guessing here? It is a... a, How often people click. How often people click for a given campaign. Now, do you want some of the campaigns? Yeah, give me okay. a camp. Just give me one example. I'll so try I'm, do my best. I'm going to eliminate the number one. Okay. We'll talk about number one because I think it's an anomaly. Okay. It's called it's called brain food. Okay. And it, it's also a botnet, but on the chart, the click rate is over 1.6 per message sent. Okay. So we'll eliminate that one. Okay. The next most popular one, you ready? Yeah. Is Blackboard. Blackboard, Blackboard phishing. Okay. Most effective, not popular. All right. Effective. What do you think the rate of click is on this one? What is Blackboard? What Blackboard is an education platform. So we use it at Hopkins. Oh, okay. And it's how teachers share information with their students. At Capital Technology University, it's how they actually run all their distance education programs. I see. So I'm a student at some place where they're teaching stuff and they have yep. online access Hopkins to this. Or, ta- or Capital. Lots of places use it. Yep. So they'll send out something that pretends to be from this popular online service for educators. Right. And how often do people fall for the bait? Yep. Wow. I'm going to say, based on what I know about advertising and marketing, which is about, I don't know, you're lucky if you get, I mean, it's phenomenally successful, I think, if you get like a 10% click through. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say 10%. Okay. This chart says that the Blackboard campaign gets more than 60% click throughs. It gets a 0.6 clicks for every email that's sent out. Get out. That's what it says. Really? Yeah. Wow. 
Here's why I think that's the case. People don't usually view this as a threat factor, right? Because mm. it's very specialized and targeted. You didn't even know what Blackboard was. No. Yeah, I know what it is because I work in education. And actually, when I got my master's degree, I had to rely on Blackboard a lot. Okay. So I'm familiar with it. But students get these emails from these scammers saying, hey, log into your Blackboard account. Of course, it's a it's a credential harvesting thing. Right. But the, the reason they fall for it and they click on it is because they get these emails frequently. Yeah. If you're right? a student, you're going to be getting stuff from Blackboard all the time. Yeah. And if so I, it becomes a routine. Right. And if I can impersonate your instructor and say, hey, the new things are up on Blackboard, here's a link to it, then I can easily see how these things would be so successful. Now, with something like Blackboard, how hard would it be for me to figure out who your instructor is? That's a good question. I mean, I just thinking about that. Yeah, is I'm just that, thinking about is it. Is that publicly available? It might be. Mm-hmm. If I'm a student in the class, then I know who's in it, right? Yeah. What else did they find here? Some other really effective phishing campaigns that that get the high click-through rates. Zoom info. Oh, is that the, the conferencing? T conference calling. Yep, conference calling. Yep. Here, here's one that kind of surprised me. AOL phishing. Really? It's, yeah. <laughs> You've been fished. Right. <laughs> Okay, so there's another kind of scam in here, the Microsoft scam, right? Because yeah. Microsoft is now huge in businesses right. with uh, Office 365. Mm -hmm. So guess what percentage of these phishing campaigns are Microsoft's? What percentage are pretending to be Microsoft? Correct. Um, I don't know, half? Ah, high. That's a little high. That's a little high. Okay, yeah. I went over. Darn. It's a quarter. It's one in four. Oh. One in four of these phishing campaigns is trying to impersonate Microsoft. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. It does make that, sense. That makes, okay. Not not too surprising. So here's something that's interesting in this report. The top malware families over the past 18 months have consistently included banking trojans, information stealers, and remote access tools, and other non-destructive strains designed to remain there on the computer and continuously steal information. I would have expected ransomware to have been the most common threat vector here, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's other types of things like remote access tools. I get, They're building botnets and collecting information, it looks like. Yeah, I guess if I can get your banking information mm -hmm. without you knowing, right. there's a potential for a big jackpot. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. All yep. right, well, we will definitely have a uh, link in the show notes for that. My story this week, courtesy of the folks over at TechCrunch, this is written by Sarah Perez, and the article is titled... Dating app maker Match sued by FTC for fraud. Oh. That's the Federal Trade Commission. And the uh, FTC sued Match. They're the, the folks who do uh, lots of dating sites like Match.com. They do Tinder. They do OkCupid. They do Hinge. Are all those Match products? They are all Match products. I, I had think, no idea. I, well, I think they went on a bit of a buying spree ah, at some point. I think they were that makes sort of top of the heap and... They went out and bought up a bunch of the other ones. So the FTC has come after them because they're saying that consumers aren't aware that 25 to 30 percent of match registrations per day come from scammers. Hmm. This is romance scams, phishing scams, fraudulent ads, extortion scams. They said during some months from 2013 to 2016, more than half of the communications taking place on match were from accounts the company identified as fraudulent. Really? Okay. So that's bad enough. It's, that's really high, I think. Yeah, but it, it gets worse. Oh, boy. <laughs> As so, these things often do. <laughs> yeah. So what the FTC claims is that Match would send out alerts to users uh -huh. and say, hey, you got a message from somebody. Right. But they would send that message out after they had already established that that somebody was fraudulent. Really? Yeah. So the FTC is saying that Match was using these fraudulent accounts 
for their own profits. To generate more traffic. To generate more traffic, but also I think the way that some of these work is like you can sign up for a free account to sort right. of look around, but if you want to communicate with someone, then you have to pay. Right. So if you start getting messages from people that say, I want to communicate with you, ah. jo Joe, you handsome devil. Right. Then you're going to pull out your wallet and you're going to pay and sign up for the service. Right. When I, after I've paid for the service, I'm going to see, oh, this account's been flagged as a spam account. Perhaps. Maybe. Or maybe not. Well, that's what the FTC is, is trying to get at. I see. They also said that matches in violation of something called the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, uh -huh. ROSCA. Roscoe. Uh, which, that's, a, that's a great acronym there. Yeah. So what that is supposed to do is give customers a simple way to stop recurring charges. Because okay. that's the way a lot of these, these online things get you, right? Right. They, that's how they get you. They, they sign you up and then you pay forever. That's, <laughs> that's, that's right. There's no way to unsubscribe. It's like the gym. <laughs> yeah. It's like a gym membership. Right. Absolutely. So what they're saying is that you had to go to something like six different pages to attempt to cancel your subscription. Hmm. And even then, you weren't, wouldn't be sure that it had actually taken, that you'd actually yeah, it's, done it. Yeah, it sounds like it's easier just to cancel the credit card and get a new credit card. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> or you, yeah, use one of those temporary, yeah, uh, burner, temporary credit card, burner card numbers. Yeah, Those yeah. are great services if you can get one. So Match, uh, of course, doesn't agree with any of this. Of they course. say that they're fighting fraud and they say that they handle 96% of fraudulent accounts within a day. So they're fighting back and they're saying there's nothing to this. So we'll see where it goes, uh, mm. see how it plays its way out uh, in court. But I, I suppose the, the reminder for our listeners is to be careful when you're using these sorts of things. Those messages that you get are likely to be from folks who may not exist. And it right. sounds like, uh, according to the FTC anyway, they're convinced that some of these dating companies aren't necessarily on your side. Right. Yeah. Well, they're on the side of their own profits. Yeah. That's where their corporate motivations lie. And right. as, as well, they should. I'm not saying... The corporations are bad for profiting. That's no, but what this they're seems, supposed to do. Yeah, this seems like a short-term yeah, gain, though. Exactly. Right? I, I agree with that 100%. <laughs> you know, yeah. If I were running one of these things, I would be very interested in keeping my users safe and having a good reputation for doing that. That's right. So that is my story this week. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. My favorite part of the show. Joe, our catch of the day comes to us uh, courtesy of a listener over on Twitter. This letter comes straight from Buckingham Palace. It's from Mr. Edward Young. He is the private secretary to Her Majesty, the Queen Elizabeth II. It's labeled private and confidential, and it goes like this. Dear Mr. Ridden, for the second time in the last 30 years, Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II appeals to a certain number of people to save Great Britain's economy. As you know, the Brexit will happen quite quickly, and we have not reached a bilateral agreement with the European Union. To save and sustain the UK's economy after Brexit, we must pay the European Union £19 billion. We currently have more than 82% of money available, and we need to rise the rest until October 19th, 2019. With indulgence, we appeal to you if you can borrow the royal house with amounts between 450,000 and 2 million pounds. We will offer 30% interest for a period of three months and a possibility to become a member of the Royal Warrant Holders Association. By paying this amount to the European Union, we will be able to keep the economy and inflation exactly as it is for a minimum period of 10 years, and the future changes will not affect imports from EU countries. <laughs> we want this letter to remain anonymous, as we do not wish the subject to go viral. This could affect the agreements we have in order to obtain the bilateral agreement. 
In order to be able to help us financially, please transfer the money to the Bitcoin address that was attached to your letter. Once we receive the funds, we will send you another letter with the contract. The Queen's warm good wishes to you all for your continuing success in the future. Yours sincerely, Edward Young, Private Secretary to Her Majesty, the Queen, Elizabeth II. I like how this letter, this is actually a, a physical letter that somebody got. Yeah, someone sent us, took a picture of this, someone, this was delivered in the mail. Right. Yeah. And it's got a Bitcoin address mm-hmm. on it that you're supposed to send the money to. Right. That's that's awesome. <laughs> there's, so much to, there's so much to love in this one. Why wouldn't the crown want their money in real pounds? Well, you know, and the other thing too, it's, it's not like they have a lot of cash sitting around or any valuables. Right. <laughs> You know, any, anything they could use as collateral to uh, hold them over for a couple million pounds. Right. I don't know. Maybe, full of gold, maybe, diamonds. Maybe those jewels are already encumbered with some other liens. It's possible. I, I don't know. It's possible. It's I, up to us to bail them out. I'm no expert in British finances. You know, I, I really wish uh, I'd had this one when Graham was here. Yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> then he could have read it with a real accent. Well, you know, that's true. What are you saying, Joe? Uh, like, as you know, I, I am. I think your a, accent's great. I am a master of dialects. Yes. And that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with Corinne Emai. She's a senior security advisor at Domain Tools, and she's going to explain why phishing attacks remain so effective. And we are back. Joe, it's always great to have Carol Terrio return. She's got a really interesting interview this week. She speaks with Corinne Emai. She is a senior security advisor at Domain Tools. And they're going to go over phishing attacks and why they remain so effective. Here's Carol Terrio. So, guys, I have a treat for you today. I'm speaking with Corinne Emai. Is that how I say your name? Yes. Perfect. I'm speaking with Corinne Emai, senior security advisor at Domain Tools. We hear all too often just how much malware is out there from distributed denial of service attacks or ransomware, zero day attacks. And I sometimes worry that we almost have information fatigue or information overload when it comes to these cyber nasties. So I wanted to speak with Corin on how she, as a senior security advisor at Domain Tools, avoids this feeling of there's just too much out there. I don't think there is a way to avoid it. You know, I think that uh, every day uh, we consume a ton of information, whether it be from a research perspective or an investigative perspective. But I think in order to narrow that down, you have to look at trusted sources. So uh, whether that be, you know, NCSC and and when they issue alerts to, uh, you know, stateside we use US CERT, uh, but those can be a little bit late to attack information. They have really quality information and non-biased information on an attack, but they aren't the latest breaking to see if your organization is a part of something that might be happening in real time. So there's sources like Krebs on Security. We also leverage MSSP Alert. I know that's a very odd one to hear about, but their publication comes out with some pretty, you know, late breaking stuff uh, pretty quickly. We also uh, look at Twitter. I know that that's one that the industry mm. uses. We have our friendlies on there that we we trust that the information that they're giving. And then, we, of course, we validate it. And then the old school way of doing things, uh, you know, looking to IRC and then, you know, the new wave of that, which is uh, being on Wicker and Signal to make sure that you are talking to the right folks on the right channels. Do you think, just as an aside, isn't it nuts in the last decade, I think? You know, I used to have to just basically monitor email and maybe a SMS. 
And now we all have about a dozen to hundreds of vectors of news coming in. Maybe I'm getting old. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah, no, we we have so many uh, different avenues of consuming information and it is wildly uh, overwhelming. But yeah, just uh, knowing where you can tr have trusted sources and if you're new to the industry, right, uh, trying to build those and, and reaching out to the right folks. And I think what we're seeing in the industry is this, this new wave of folks wanting to help, right? I think maybe 10 years ago or so, we were a very bullish group of folks uh, that mm -hmm. wanted to kind of keep our community, our community and not allow uh, new folks in. And I think what we're realizing is that uh, as, as we become more welcoming, we actually are welcoming some really stellar uh, security researchers as well as uh, investigators and folks to the industry. Well, I'm very pleased about that because the reason I asked you on the show is because I saw that you had conducted some research. And in this research, you said that you considered phishing to be the, quote, ultimate tool for hacking, unquote. And I hadn't ever heard anyone position phishing like this before. So I wondered if you could unpack that concept for me a little. Why is phishing an amazing tool for the malicious agents lurking in the perhaps darker corners of the internet. It has persisted over most of our careers in the industry, um, and it has become kind of the number one vector, I think, think it was Verizon in their deep data breach investigations report. So each year Verizon uh, puts out this report and it's pretty comprehensive in terms of what they cover. This specific report, I, I think it was that they analyzed more than 4,100 security incidents of which, you know, 2,000 or more of those were actually confirmed breaches. So they were able to take kind of this in-depth look at attack vectors leading into kind of more of that myopic uh, look at how that happens. And I think that each year we see that phishing is the top threat actor. And for the confirmed breaches, I think it involved more than 30% of those were from phishing. And then more than 70% uh, were the cyber espionage piece of that. So it's going to continue to kind of be the big plug that we have uh, in the industry to protect against phishing attacks. So as I understand phishing, it seems to be mostly about trying to get personal information. And maybe you can tell us, why is my personal information so valuable to a bad agent? What do they get out of that? What can they do with my information, my private personal information? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it depends on what their motivation is. So if they're looking to harvest data, it might just be able to collect and classify that data for later use, or it might just be that they are essentially uh, hoarding data uh, for the potential to say that they have a significant amount of data. So uh, we see, you know, nation states doing that a lot. Or if they're looking to leverage that, the specific data in nefarious things, they might be searching for key pieces like credentials uh, mm -hmm. to gain access to more systems or information. But is it ultimately about money? Is it to basically sell the information onwards or try to steal directly from the person whose information they've been able to get their hands on? It can be a whole slew of uh, motivating factors. I think, yes, money is definitely the number one motivation right. uh, in terms of attacks and how we look at those. But I think even past that, we're seeing a lot of organizations be breached and the PII you know, of their mm -hmm. customers being exfiltrated over different avenues. And that being just for the collection, we're not seeing it automatically used like we did a few years ago in terms of that data then being flipped and sold on the black market. We're seeing kind of this hold pattern where 
a breach happens, all of this data is exfiltrated, and then there's no action of it or no action that we're huh. seeing yet. So it just depends on what the motivating factor is. It depends on who those threat actors or those groups are and what their end goal is, which is very hard to predict. You know, sometimes I go to websites and maybe I know that I'm only going to be there one time and I give them bogus info or bogus PII info. God knows what they can get from the meta <laughs> data that, you know, they might be collecting from <laughs> me. But from, you know, from a point of view of putting in my name or an email address, I don't always put in the stuff that I use all the time, the addresses and, you know, my full name. So I'm imagining I'm not alone in that. And so this information that a bad actor can grab can't be always clean. How do they clean that data to make it useful? It depends what they're looking for. So uh, in a data exfiltration, they might just be looking for one specific person's records. They might just be looking for high value target records, but they also might just be looking at the masses to be able to plug credentials or information in and get something back. So if we're talking about PII, uh, specifically first name, last name, potentially address and NID, all of those mm -hmm. pieces, the value of that is to be able to go and register other accounts or do uh, fraudulent things with that information. So it doesn't matter if it's uh, true or false, eventually what they'll be able to do is basically plug it into a system that will spit all of these variations out and match them. It becomes a game, right? Uh, most of this is for the fun of it. And it's fun to hunt, but it's also fun to see kind of these in the wild. Uh, not that I condone <laughs> uh, bad behavior, but it is Good. interesting <laughs> to kind of see how different actors or groups are unpacking these massive data sets that they're exfiltrating, right? Because you are correct. A lot of folks are registering things not with their true first and last name, or they're registering them with a bogus email account or those types of things. Mm. But what you'll start to see is they'll target organizations organizations where you have to provide valid information. So uh, we see this in a lot of the FSI or healthcare or those those folks. Right. Because obviously, if I have to fill in a tax return or if I'm going to the hospital or getting insurance or all those places, the information they will have on me will probably be up to date and accurate because otherwise I won't get the service I need. So are these sectors being increasingly targeted, do you think, because the data is so valuable? Yeah, absolutely. We released some research in terms of HMRC and a phishing campaign that we were able to identify there. But yeah, anything like uh, tax records, anything from the healthcare sector, anything from the financial sector in terms of uh, your credits or, or how that runs is going to be really high value because it does have to be validated. But it always is going to be a high value target because the second they get a hold of that data, it is really hard, right? We're talking about, you know, having to lock down your credit, freeze your credit, things like putting on fraud alerts, right? Things that majority of the population don't assume that that's the risk they're taking in sharing that PII. I rarely see it as the end user's fault, although they are the ones that pay the absolute biggest price if a third party or a company or like, for example, the Equifax breach a few years ago, all that information getting hoovered out, you know, it's the individual that's hurt a lot by that because it's their social security number that's inflicted as well as their home address, as well as their, you know, contact information. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about this very often is where does the onus sit? Is that on the organization? Is that on the end user or consumer? Is that on the vendors in the industry to provide uh, valuable and uh, relatively well-priced tools that 
everyone has access to to make it a, a safer internet. One of my former colleagues, John Pierce, said to me once, and this was at the beginning of my career, he said, you know, you either participate in this world or you don't. And that really stuck with me and it has until now. But I think helping folks understand that is the job of vendors and is the job of any of these organizations that are consuming this PII, right? Um, there's a large educational piece that we could be doing a better job with. You know, many of my friends and colleagues, when we talk about this issue, and probably I talk about it way too much from their point of view, but when I talk about this issue of PII and, lose, you know, and privacy, they're like, you know, Crawl, come on. It's way too late now. They've got all our information. These hacks have happened. Our information is out there. So why should we worry about it now? You know, what's your response to that kind of attitude? Unfortunately, yes. I am of the same wavelength that, yes, we probably have already succumbed to that. But I don't think that means that we stop right? We still have to want to protect our own data as individuals, and we still have to want to hold organizations that we hand our data over to accountable. There's a lot of distrust these days in big organizations for very valid reasons. You know, everyone reads the headlines as to how we feel about the big internet giants that are out there and how they're handling our data. So thank you for doing what you do (laughs) and helping to educate us on how it works, because we all want to be more mindful. Wonderful. Yes. This was Corin Emai, Senior Security Advisor at Domain Tools. And of course, I'm Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right, Joe, what do you think? Well, Dave, I want to say I love it when my story on this show lines up with the interview <laughs> so nicely. <laughs> it's almost as if we planned it. It is. And so, we did and not. Phishing is the ultimate tool for hacking. Yeah. And it's persistent. And l- like I said earlier, it's just because it works. Mm-hmm. It's so effective. Money is the big motivator overall. When I give a presentation on why people hack, I used to say, here's a list of reasons why people hack. And now what I say is, I used to say this list of reasons, but now I just say money, mm-hmm. right? Because it's so profitable for these guys to do it. Well, I mean, not really incredibly profitable. I mean, there's more in, in America, there are better ways to make money, but outside, There might not be. Yeah. Your data is valuable, no matter how innocuous you may think it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if it's just a little piece of information, if these guys can automate the gathering of that information and then the organization of that information, which is relatively easy to do, then they can create a pretty valuable product that they can sell on a black market very quickly. Yeah. Bundle it. Right. Volume, volume, volume. Volume, right. (laughs) (laughs) Like Spatula City. (laughs) You remember Collection One? I think it was Troy Hunt that uncovered that or publicized it. Right. But it was just a conglomeration of a huge number of previous breaches. And that had value. It was already known data, but the fact that somebody could have that much data in one place had value to other attackers. Mm-hmm. I like what Corinne talks about here, that a lot of times it's used to create fraudulent accounts, right? Mm-hmm. So your information can be used to set up fraudulent accounts, and not, not just like bank accounts or credit card accounts, but like Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts. Pretending to be you. Right. Those are a lot easier to set up with fake credentials than a, than a bank account is and can be useful to these guys. I will say that Corinne is right. Some of this stuff is fun and that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. And I think that the work that she's doing is good work and important work. The one thing I thought was interesting was who is culpable for these data breaches. Hmm. And I think that's something that needs to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. If you are a user of like a healthcare portal and your password to that healthcare portal is password, the vendor or your healthcare provider is not culpable <laughs> for the loss of your healthcare data, in my hmm. opinion. You did not pick a, a strong enough password. Now, if, however, that same portal has a vulnerability that allows somebody to circumvent the authentication 
and just get in the back end and yeah. then they take your data. Then the healthcare provider would be culpable, I think. Hmm. I really think it depends on every single case and you have to look at it individually. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you think there's any culpability to the, the folks for letting you use a weak password? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but, you know, it, then we're like, you know, then we're at the same thing with, with the lawnmower. The reason we have that that handle on our lawnmower is so we can't pick up the lawnmower and mower hedges with it, you know? Yeah. Because somebody did that and lost their fingers. Right. You know? I don't know. I'm just thinking about a situation like, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with a, an auto insurance company where you get some damage to your car and they'll come and they say, well, that quarter panel was previously scratched and we're not going to fix anything that had previous damage. Right. You know, that, those sorts of things. Yes. And I could just see him saying, well, yes, we had a major breach and we lost, uh, you know, 100,000 people's uh, data. But we went through and we found that your data was being protected by your weak password. Oh, oh, oh okay. So everyone else were going to compensate, but because you were using a weak password. No, in that case, I wouldn't think that that would make the user culpable. Yeah. I, I think the manner of breach is, is the important part. I right? see. Circumventing the authentication and getting into the back end and, and dumping the database is a completely different attack than me going, Dave, username, Dave, password, password. Yeah. It's like, will the insurance company pay me if someone breaks into my house when I left the front door open? They actually will. It's still a crime. <laughs> right. Right. I think it's actually still breaking and entering. Yeah, probably. Or maybe it's just burglary. I, I mean, it's still burglary. Yeah. That right. much is certain. But I don't know if it's breaking and entering. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Fittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 